Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just on 7.30, and, of course, it's Sunday morning and time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, of course, we have to say a very good morning back to Stephen Ryan from Dixoni Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning all our listeners out there. Uh, I'm not sure what sort of a morning it's going to be. It's a bit drizzly out there, and you know, so we could be in for a bit more rain. Mm-hmm. Of course, as gardeners, we never say never about rain. Uh, the more the merrier, really. Absolutely. So we're going to go into spring with a bang this year, which is fantastic. But it's uh, certainly getting lighter. Oh, Every yes. Sunday morning, it's, it's lighter. It was still dark when I left this morning, yep. so I had to leave the animals for somebody else to let out. Okay. Oh, well, so be, so be it. Another couple of weeks and it'll be my job again. Yep. Uh, but, uh, yes, it is getting lighter, and so I get home from work now, and there is a little time to rush around the garden and do a few things and mm-hmm. what have you, which is fantastic, and... Yes, and I'm sort of trying to get ready for spring, digging, weeding, planting, mulching, feeding. <sighs> it Last all has to be pruning. done at once, doesn't yeah, it? it does, all yes. of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, and but the best thing about it is, if you can get it all done, then you can sit back a little bit as the spring comes in, and you can actually enjoy that madness of everything sort of erupting and doing its thing. So, if you can get on top of the work uh, at this time of the year, then you do get the payoff later. Yes, whether for I sure. will or not, of course, is another thing. <laughs> Well, you're sort of rather heavily occupied these oh, days. I am at the moment. I mean, you every are. time I turn around, I seem to have said yes to something. I know. <laughs> so, I, so I'm sort of, what am I doing? I'm rushing down to Springvale Road today. I'm rushing over to Lee and Gather next week. Uh, I'm also rushing over to Attila Capitani's garden to open the garden scheme for the season. Um, yes, in the next two or three weeks, I'm doing so many things that I'm sort of meeting myself coming. But anyhow... <laughs> We'll get through it, hopefully. You will. You will. (laughs) We have to say a very good morning to A.B. Bishop. Morning, A.B. Oh, good morning, yes. And it was very drizzly at our place. Mm. But um, I always feel disappointed when you hear the weather um, announcers and they're like, oh, you know, it's another drab, sorry day. It's going to be raining. And, you know, when you're a gardener, you think... Awesome! It's yeah. raining. You know, yes. it's a, it's a fantastic day. Yeah. You know, especially this time of year. You know, when we did have an early dry winter, mm. and um, just getting a bit of moisture into the soil. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I was putting in some um, plants last weekend, and I was very excited to see as I was digging down into my lovely clay rocky soil. <laughs> yes, where you are. Yes, <laughs> yes <laughs> that it had actually held quite a bit of water, and it, you know, it, it is actually quite a well drained soil, surprisingly. But it had held that water, so I was quite excited. And um, got the hakea decurrans yeah. in. Oh, and, well done. Yeah. I always get excited when I notice that if you get rain on the ground, it actually soaks in. Yes. Because yes. my ground gets very hydrophobic by the end of summer and you're out there watering and you're watching it just sort of bead on the top, you know, and no matter what you do, I mean, even with wetting agents and things, sometimes it's hard to sort of break the cycle. Yes. And now, of course, whenever there's water on the ground, you see it's soaking in and I yeah. go, fantastic, it's yep. working. I'm so, thinking having, I think having just even a little bit of that leaf litter breaking down mm. can contribute to, you know, yeah. allowing the water to to soak in a bit easily rather than just yeah, disappearing down the, down to the river. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> well, we dug a trench recently, as you do. Um, we decided that, that the water overflow from our tanks, which was going into the stormwater to the street, would be far better used if we ran a 
pipe from the tanks up to our pond at the top of the garden, which is still lower than the top of the tank. So although the pipes will stay charged with water, it'll run out the far end. So we decided we would put a big white downpipe all the way up through the middle of the vegetable garden. And we dug down, I suppose, the best part of a metre to put this pipe in. And it's damp right down mm. there. And, wow. You know, so I was really excited. And, you and you know, obviously at a metre we were digging into nasty clay, but it was actually diggable, you know, so uh, we actually got it done. So now I'm hoping the tanks are going to fill up over the next couple of weeks and we'll have water dribbling out the far end after all that work. How long is the trench? Uh, it must be... 25, 30 metres. Oh, okay. So you got a ditch witch in. No. You did it yourselves. Well. Come some, on. What did you I do? I actually Come didn't on. dig you the did trench. Not, oh, okay. Somebody else did who has, who is a determined person in my life who, <laughs> who will not let anything beat them if they take this job on. Not so, even a trench. Not even a trench and not a bad back, which came out of oh, the whole gosh. thing as well. Oh. Um, and uh, But it was dug. And the plumber was quite excited when he saw the trench. He thought he might employ Craig as a a trench (laughs) digger. Uh, So, no, it was all done by hand because we had to go up through the middle of the veggie garden and, you know, it was was tricky because we didn't want to disturb any more than we had to. Um, And so it was a tricky trench to dig. Uh, But, yes, it's all in place now. And we even laid a big water pipe up there as well in case we wanted to put a pump on the pond to take water out of it again in case of fire and other things. So we actually laid a secondary pipe in there that we may or may not use in due course, but it's there. Very good. Well, if you're digging a trench, you might as well maximise the use. I said, do we need any electricity up there? (laughs) What else can we put in there? (laughs) I had all sorts of visions of how we could utilise this incredibly large (laughs) trench that somebody had dug that was actually a little over the top. Get the NBN out there. Yeah, yeah, well, we could have got the NBN out there. I reckon we could have done anything. So, um, But it was really exciting to get down into the ground and realise that the moisture had got right down. I mean, I guess if I was to dig under one of my trees, that might be a different kettle of fish, but certainly in the open spaces in the garden, the water has got right down. Mm. Um, And that means that things, when they shoot in the spring, are going to do it with gusto this season, whereas some of these springs we've had over the last few years where it's been too dry during the winter, things have sort of wimply sort of come out into leaves. And and there's not that same sort of spring madness that you expect and even things that are tough haven't really sort of flourished away in the spring as they should yep. i mean as some may know i hold the elderflower collection of my garden sambucuses now they're pretty tough old shrubs uh, but when you have a dry winter they sort of come into leaf they're all right but you don't get nice strong canes on them you don't get that sort of sense of real vigor um, and they don't flower as well and yep. and all that sort of stuff so this year they should go nuts mm. Mm. Oh, and keep your eye out on your garden magazine because I'm writing an article on them. I'm not sure when it's going to come out, though. Okay. And uh, do, you do, do you make wine from them? Haven't tried wine. Done the cordial. Um, we've done elderflower cordial. I've tasted but haven't tried elderflower champagne. Uh, I've tried elderflower fritters, which are great fun because you pick the whole flower head and dip it yeah, in and the dip light it in batter. And then, and yep. then you've got a handle. Oh, like a zucchini. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, okay. and so they're great fun. Uh, we've made elder, elderberry jam. Uh, which is quite tasty. So well, I haven't made any pan pipes from them yet, but you apparently can. Um, <laughs> so they're all the sorts of things I'll be talking about in the article when I get round to writing it. Uh, but, yeah, I think they're an engaging and interesting group of plants. So yep. very, very interested in the older flowers. So, Excellent. Yeah, so my collection is growing. I've even got one of my own seedlings that I might name that came up in the garden that is quite different to anything I've seen before. So mm. it's really a weird looking elderflower but it's it could be quite nice i'm waiting to see it flower this year to see see whether it ends up being white or whether it's got some pink in it because there's a chance there might be some pink in it because it's got bronze in the leaves okay and that often 
yep. then suggests that the flowers are going to be a different colour. Yep. So I'm seeing what will happen. I've got a name in the back of my head that I'll call it if it's worthwhile naming. So <laughs> we'll see how we go. Okay. Uh, yeah, so there you go. Brilliant. We also have to say a very good morning to Shane Cummins, and Shane is from Long Paddock Olive Rustlers. Good morning, Shane. Good morning, Pam. And you've been a very busy boy too because you've just completed judging olive oils at the Royal Melbourne Show. Yeah, Australian Food Awards uh, under the Royal Agricultural Society of Victoria mm. and uh, absolutely delightful oils. Brilliant. So. Do you spit or do you swallow? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> uh, a bit of both, but you, you, you'll end up with a small container of oil and the good ones, you look and suddenly they're empty. And you... <laughs> oh, that's how you judge them if they've just gone whoop. <laughs> <laughs> look along the row. <laughs> it's a really good guide. Yeah. <laughs> Um, while, while we've got you talking, Shane, um, some of the listeners who didn't catch up with you when you were on last time, explain to them the whole concept of, of, of Olive Rustlers and, and how you got started. And it's be- basically because, because in your area, which is up Wagga, Wagga, um, there are a whole lot of, of old neglected olive trees. We've got trees that date back to the 1890s. We've got trees that, so that was... When the Germans came over, that was part of the pickling and that was part of the things that you put into the cellar for the winter. Mm. Um, We've got trees that date back to 1918, so that was various people coming back from the war, uh, bringing them with them because they'd they'd established a taste at the time, and a number of uh, different migrant groups coming through. So there were Greek groups coming through, Lebanese people coming through. Everybody bought a tree with them. Mm. Lex Marinos's great maternal grandfather planted seven trees at a place called The Rock just outside of Wagga in 1918, and we've had two gold medals off those so far. Wow. They're, they're stunning. Yep. Uh, we fight with the birds for those each year. <laughs> I bet. Um, the next set of plantings that went in were about 1938, and the university at Wagga, which is Charles Sturt, has plantings that mirror all of those. So they've got 1897 plantings. Do we know the cultivars of some of these old olives? Yeah, except I can, I've got, I've seen the list. Uh, I've so seen, they have ID'd them. So yeah, and I've seen uh, the DNA people, but I've never seen their results. Um, We've picked something like 110 varieties of olives. Uh, most of the early olives that were bought there were for pickling. Uh, oil's a more recent innovation. Uh, we lost one of our olive growers this year. He planted his trees 60 years ago, and at the tender age of 92, <laughs> he up and died on us, which oh, I thought was... How dare he? <laughs> um, and when we first went out to pick at his place, there was 200 trees there, and... Uh, He'd sort of had an interest in them, sort of a bit proud of them, but didn't quite know what they did or anything else. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, look, we don't do any cooking at home and we won't want any oil, but just do what you can. And we couldn't help ourselves. We dropped a few bottles of oil off and after that he became very insistent. And all of a sudden there was a lot of cooking done at home. <laughs> and at his funeral, the gold medal that he'd received from the 2014 Melbourne show was one of the highlights of his career. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Isn't it? Fabulous. Yeah. So, so um, in effect, what you and a couple of other people did was to go in and actually prune some of these old trees that weren't really producing anymore and you've brought them back to life. Uh, we, we think if you're going to take, you've got to give back. So um, 
you can stand there and complain that nobody else has tidied the trees up and they're very hard to pick, or you can quietly go and ask permission to prune while you're going. So we've done that, and it's actually a very proud moment when you stand back from a tree that's been well-picked and well-pruned. Right. Um, and then there's plantings from around 2000, which is the modern run of olives, and some of those groves are already abandoned or a bit untidy, so we're we're starting to work through them one at a time, tidying them up, and working with the people or will take control of them. Right. Um, and... Mostly it's been working with the people. Uh, some of the groves that we've worked on have changed hands three times and they keep ringing us up and getting us back. <laughs> you must um, be doing something right then. <laughs> uh, we're making, uh, somebody said, how did you get involved in all this? And I said, oh, it's simple. I make the best olive oil in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and you're very modest about things as well. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when, you, when that's what you're taking home and when that's what you're using and then that's what you're cooking with, so that's my com- contribution to the larder for the year, and nobody's complained yet. Okay, fair enough. All right, I must get to some community announcements because, um, well, it's virtually spring, uh, yes, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's all happening. <laughs> First up, we should mention Stephen, where you going? You're going after the show because Garden World have got a spring launch on this weekend. Yes, and they've got speakers up on stage talking about all sorts of different um, subjects and what have you. There's suppliers there that are going to be showing off their products. Uh, I'm going down there to be part of the Ewood presentation. So, and for those who don't remember what Ewood is, it's that uh, amazing sort of. Um, plastic product that you can use for raised beds and sleeper walls and what have you that's made out of e-waste, so Mm. developed from uh, bits of old computer and television screens and things. Um, So I'll be down there with the Ewood people uh, showing off the product and explaining how it works. Uh, John Patrick will be there this afternoon as well. Um, So it should be a good day out. Um, So come down, have a chat to us, have a look around. Um, uh, There's plenty of people with knowledge down there to be able to help you to select plants and other product and stuff. Um, And you can come and say say hi to me, which would be fine. And there's lots of kids' activities too. Yes, apparently so. Yeah, there's an animal farmyard. There's a balloon (laughs) twister. There's face painting. There's um, prize giveaways. John is actually speaking 12 till 2. Yeah, and I think I'm on just after John doing a little bit of a presentation on Ewood. Okay. Uh, but I'm happy to talk about plants as well, obviously. If I'm yep. down there, if people have got queries about plants or want some advice on things or whatever, I'm happy to sort of branch out into any sort of horticultural pursuit. Fair enough. Um, a couple of other things on uh, today. Firstly, the uh, Camellia Society, uh, Camellias Victoria, have got their Camellia Festival on today. Uh, It did start yesterday, but today it's running from 10am through to 4.30. It's in the Mount Waverley Community Centre in Miller Crescent there in Mount Waverley. Entry is $5 and uh, there'll be camellias for sale as well as on uh, display. There'll be Devonshire teas and uh, it should be a a really, if you're interested in in camellias, there's also, they're incorporating the... um, the Winter Floral Art Championship. So there'll be plenty of uh, top florists there also competing in that one. So, yeah, very interesting. 
Uh, we should mention also that uh, oh, Post yes. Office Farm is still open at the moment to yep. the public on Sundays only. Yep, Sundays only. So Post Office Farm out in Ashbourne Road at Ashbourne. Uh, if you want to see hellebores at their absolute best, mm. uh, you can't go anywhere better to look at them. I mean, Peter's range is just Oh, he's amazing. incredible. He's amazing. Yeah. Yes, you talk about somebody who's a, um, a one-eyed, passionate grower of something. I yep. mean... Um, You've got to be to have put the dedication in he has to create those different strains of double hellebores in different coloured forms. And uh, it's probably one of the world's best collections of hellebores. That's not just Australia. Oh, That's yes. worldwide. He's Absolutely. right up there. Yep. So it's worth going out for a look. You won't be able to get out without buying one <laughs> or two. Or five. Or five, <laughs> yes. Now, I'm sure you won't get out without buying stuff. But to go over and have a look at um, his different breeding ranges, it's it's truly remarkable. So it's well worth a trip out. Make sure you're warm, warmly dressed, though, I would yes. think, if you go out today. It, it is out from Wood End, we should yeah. explain, yeah. right? The official address is 934 Ashburn Road in Ashburn. He's open from 10 o'clock this morning through till 4 o'clock. And if by any chance you get lost looking for it, I'll give a couple of phone numbers. Yes, that's a good idea. <laughs> um, 5427 3227. That's 5427 Or his mobile, 0419 883 Now, uh... Next weekend, of course, Lee and Gather, their yes. 60th, 60th, I can't believe it, old, Daffodil yes. and Floral Show and Festival. And yeah. the daffodils will be amazing. Yeah. And they've invited somebody who down, uh, down who's about the right age, really. Right, okay. <laughs> to, to open the You'll show. fit right in. Yeah, I'll fit right in, yeah. I can't say tiptoe through the tulips, no. it's the daffodils. Yeah, well, it is. But, yes, they obviously started the uh, the whole organisation not long after my birth in my honour, really, waiting for 60 <laughs> years later so that they could invite me down to open it. Yep. So there you go. Now, the other beauty is it opens next Friday. So mm. it runs for three days, not two days. Yeah. So it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Mm. And um, the venue is the Lee and Gatham Memorial Hall and also the CBD. There's an admission admission cost of five dollars, um, but there's going to be all sorts of not only daffodils and other bulbs. There'll be camellia cut flowers, Australian plants, uh, floral art. Um, there's going to be a plant stall and refreshments, and there'll be garden walks and a special event celebrating the anniversary. To be announced, so I don't know what the special event is. Could be me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I know I'm doing a talk at some stage okay. uh, whilst I'm down there. Oh, well, there you go. Um, so I'm doing a PowerPoint presentation that I'm calling The Weird and the Wonderful. Um, so we're going to look at some pretty weird plants, I think. Okay. Uh, so I'll be doing that, but I can't remember when during yep. the whole event. But yes, I'll be down there. So if anybody wants to come down and see me, I'll be pottering around. I'm supposed to open the, the whole So shebang. when's the official opening? Sometime during the day on Thursday. Yep. I think it's about one or two o'clock in the afternoon. I know it's after lunch. Okay. So, uh, um, but you could be wandering around town having a look at things and all that sort of stuff as well. So yep. if I've got it all wrong, it won't be earlier than that. Okay. So, because uh, I won't be there by then. <laughs> so, yeah, so sometime early in the afternoon will be the official opening. Okay. Now, the next big show I need to mention, which um, I've been told... Um, on good authority, is just bigger than Ben-Hur this year. And this is the big orchid show and sale that's uh, being held 26th, 27th, 28th. Again, that's next weekend. Um, this uh, is taking place down at the KCC Park, which is down in Sky. It's actually in the Box Hall Pavilion. 
And the address is 655 Western Port Highway in Skye there. Melway's reference is 128J12. Um, it's opening Friday 9 till 5, Saturday 9 till 5 and Sunday 9 till 4. Entry for adults is $10 as a concession of $9. Children under 15 are free. And there's just going to be so many people exhibiting orchids from right round Australia. Uh, there'll be uh, bromeliads and other bulbs. There'll be a photographic competition and art show. Books, pots and accessories. Lots of potting demonstrations. Experts on hand. Free parking and all the rest of it. So that's next weekend as well. It's actually their 23rd annual Melbourne Orchid Spectacular. Uh, so it's all happening. Oh, it certainly is. And uh, talking about all happening, of course, you mentioned before Open Gardens Victoria. Yes. Has its launch coming up uh, next Saturday. It's, yes. And uh, it's starting off with uh, uh, Michelle and Attila Capitani's amazing succulent garden. It really is incredible. And I can't believe you haven't seen it. Well, you know me. I'm I so know, busy. you're too busy doing other things. Yeah. yeah, so the only time I ever get out to see these things is if they drag me out to open them yep. or something. You know? So that, that seems to be how I managed to see them. So it was actually one of the lures when they said they'd like me to open the scheme this year when they told me where it was. And I thought, all right, well... I'll actually get to see Attila's garden, which is fantastic, yep. and uh, and I've got a purpose for being there other than just zooming down to look. Absolutely, so, yeah. Yep. So it sort of works for me. But um, it's a loose term for succulents uh, because the garden features um, uh, agaves, aloes, yuccas, uh, ground covering succulents, Australian bottle trees. Mm. So um, water retention plants. Mm. I would broaden the horizon a bit but it, it is just spectacular what he can do with with succulent you've been out there haven't you Abed? no i haven't, you haven't really. either. I see, no. somebody else who I'm hasn't been there, there. Yeah, but I, we filmed it on the show a couple yeah. of times so yep. yeah i, I do feel know like it. i feel there. like i've been there yeah that's right <laughs> <laughs> okay well uh the details are the address and i still don't know the exact no i'm not um, sure how to pronounce it how either. to pronounce it either but it's one the low the loch l-o-u-g-h court in narrywarren north um, it's open 10 till 4.30 both next Saturday and next Sunday. Entry is $8. Children under 18 are free. Students, which I really approve of, is $5. And again, our um, good friends at Open Gardens Victoria have come on board to the 3CR Gardening Show. They're offering us a free double pass to the first listener who'd like to ring in. Um, on nine four one nine zero one double five, they can get Fantastic. a free double pass for to use either day of next weekend to go and see Attila's garden. So that's amazing. That number again nine four one nine zero one double five. Now, in conjunction with uh, the launch of their um, season. They've got a Macedon coach tour coming up on the 1st of September. And again, yes. you're involved, Stephen, yes. sort of. <laughs> yeah, well, again. <laughs> actually fairly strongly involved. Um, I, was, I helped them set up some of the gardens they're going to visit. Um, and they're also coming to, and even though it's a Thursday, they're coming to visit my nursery because I'm not normally open on a Thursday. So we ha they're having a private sort of visit to the nursery, which includes bubbles and nibbly things, which I've got to get organised. Okay. Um, but it will be there, I promise. Uh so that's sort of part of the tour is that they come into the nursery at the end of the day. They can wander around the nursery with a glass of bubbles in hand uh, and have a look at the plants and chat to me about things. And, yeah, be a nice sort of finish off for a day trip. So, so um, to, to just 
pad out what's happening on that coach tour on the day. There's a visit to Durrell, mm-hmm. then Glenrannock, um, Ard Rudar, uh, Tara, and then on to you. Yeah, which is a big day. I mean, it's a huge that's day. That's a lot of gardens around. to look it at. It is a lot of. Yeah, so make sure you wear your sensible shoes and not your high heels. Yep. Um, and and warm coat and things just in case. Definitely. Uh, but yeah, it's it's an interesting mixture of gardens. They're all comparatively close, so the distance between them is very small, so it's quite easy to get around them. Um, uh, and certainly Ardruder and Durrell, well, and Tiftar to an extent, are reasonably level gardens, so they, they won't be too hard to manage, but they're all largish gardens. Um, uh, Glen Rannick, I might add, though, will be breathtaking in lots of different ways um, because it's got lots of steps and things in it, so okay. you'll, you'll, you know, you need a certain yes, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was my just a little play on yes. words there. Um, and um, they should be looking gorgeous because you know the early rhododendrons will be in flower, and there'll still be and there'll be plenty of bulbs out, so there'll be lots of daffodils and and other spring bulbs in flower. So they all should be looking lovely. Mm. I was actually up in Durrell the other day, and. The moss paths and lawns are all looking spongy and bright green and oh. gorgeous. I mean, something about mossy things yes, that beautiful. really gets me going. Yep. Um, so um, it'll be it'll probably be the calmest of the gardens because it doesn't do lots of flowers, but it's got magnificent old oak trees and just just a lovely spot to wander. Mm. So it'll be a great day. And and as I said, they finish off with a glass of bubbles at my place and and a wander around the nursery and. Um, uh, they can even do some retail therapy if they need to. I'm sure they will be inspired to. Now, the details are the ticket price is $195, but that includes return coach transport from Federation Square, uh, morning tea, lunch and an afternoon drink. I presume mm. that's your bubbles. Yeah, yeah, that's the bubbles. Okay. Yeah. Now, to book, you have to go online to the uh, Open Gardens Victoria website, which is www dot open gardens victoria or one word dot org dot au and you can book for that one and that coach tour again is starting on the first of september okay that brings me up to september so i'm going to leave some of those announcements till a bit further on but you've got two that we really should mention Steve. yeah look i guess the things for the diary um the 22nd of september uh is the well it's the big plant auction for plant trust uh we don't mention the fact that it's an AGM as well terribly much because that's inclined to put people off. But our AGM lasts for about 10 minutes. Um, it's all sorted out it before. It pales into insignificance despite the yeah, auction because yeah, of the and, auction. And it is yes. about the auction. It so, is all about um, the auction. So it starts at 6.30 where we have wine and cheese uh, and a viewing of the plants that will be auctioned. Um, the AGM starts at 7.30. Uh, well and truly by 8 o'clock we should be starting the plant auction. And uh, it's at Domain House in Dallas Brooks Drive. So for those who don't know, if you go to the Herbarium, the little road that runs directly outside the front door of the Herbarium straight down is Dallas Brooks Drive. And Domain House is the white building just down on the right-hand side. So it's easy enough to find. And the plants that are being auctioned will be mainly from uh, supporters of the organisation and collection holders. Uh, so there'll be a wide range of different plants and things. I know I've already got some cannas and some lavenders from the Bendigo Botanic Gardens for the auction because they b- hold both the canna and the lavendula collections up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, and a couple of them are really rare heritage cannas. So um, you know there, there'll be a wide range of plants. I'll be supplying some some things from my collections. Uh, uh, hopefully, uh, Uncle. 
Lotto Fauser will be supplying some of his beautiful oh, wow. bulbs from his garden up in the Dandenongs. I always get top dollar for those. Um, and so it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, I, I try and just, you know, sort of make people laugh and enjoy themselves as well as spend money to help support Plant Trust, which I think is a very important organisation. It that, is. Um, needs to be a little bit better known, I think, amongst the, the general public. And uh, obviously we welcome people as visitors. Uh, we're also very happy if people join up. You don't have to be a collection holder to be part of Plant Trust. We like people to get involved who just want to be involved in the organisation. And you can go along to our events and walks and things that we do. Uh, the one we had in the Botanic Gardens a week or so ago was fantastic fun. Mm. Um, Virginia Haywood and I... Uh, Gaily wandered along telling people about camellias and oricaceae and the other collections that are being held in the botanic gardens. The Pomoderis collection, which I don't really know that terribly much about, except I know they're yellow. Um, <laughs> and um, so we had a really lovely day, nice luncheon at Domain House as well. So we do all sorts of interesting trips and things. So it's great fun. So please think about it. 22nd of September at Domain House. Um, and... Uh, You'll have a really good time. That's mm. the main thing. And, you know, there'll be a glass of wine just to loosen up your wallet and uh, all that sort of stuff. And, yeah, you'll go home with plants you didn't even know you needed, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, and the other thing in September that uh, is, is close to my heart is the Garden Lovers Fair at Mount Macedon, uh, which is run by the Mount Macedon and District Horticultural Society. And all the details are up on their website, which is mountmacedonhorticulturalalloneword.org.au. And it's on the 17th and 18th of September. Uh, it's held at Bollebeck, one of our wonderful large heritage-listed properties at Macedon, um, with its gorgeous trees and lovely sweeping lawns uh, and beautiful borders and things. Uh, the car park opens at 9.30, both on Saturday and Sunday. The actual event starts at 10. Uh, it's $10, which includes the fair and entry to the garden. Uh, children are free. Uh, there'll be about 30 stall holders, which include a lot of different plant growers, as well as garden furniture, sculpture, um, seeds, uh, all sorts of other subsidiary lines. Tools as well are another thing that'll be there. Okay. Uh, there'll be tea and coffee available, light lunches, all that sort of stuff as well. So you could spend the whole day pottering around having a lovely time at Bollebeck. Mm. So that's the 17th and 18th of September. So there's a couple of things coming up in September that... I think are really important events that we should all be behind. Terrific. Okay, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. In the studio this morning we have Stephen Ryan, A.B. Bishop and Shane Cummins. If you'd like to uh, phone in, we've just opened our talkback lines for callers. Uh, if you'd like to join in the discussion or if you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, do give us a call. The number is 94190155. That's nine. 9- Four one nine zero one double five. Now, Stephen, homework that we had from oh, last yes. week. Um, we had a listener wanting to know about propagating cottonus. Yeah. Now, cottonus are not easy from cuttings. Uh, even the nursery industry is more than aware of that. Uh, but with modern technology, with different hormones and foggers and misters and bottom heat and all those different things that we now have to our uh, in our arsenal of propagating, most nurseries are now growing cottonus from cuttings. But it's not something that's easy to do for the home gardener. If you want to propagate cottonus uh, in the home garden, the best way to deal with it is by layering. So if you've got a low branch, you can just pin that down into the ground. Uh, nick the bottom of the stem first is always a good idea because a little bit of a wound there will help 
develop callus tissue, which in fact should help develop roots. And so pin it down into the ground or into a pot, but make sure where you've pinned it down, you keep moist. Mm. More so than where you're watering the main plant, in fact. So you're better to water the outskirts around it. Keep that base of that uh, layered piece uh, well watered. Now, another way that the nursery industry used to propagate them before uh, modern technology came along was by stool layering. And that really means that you cut the whole plant down to the basically the ground and then you'll get a whole pile of strong water shooty canes that will come up from the base. The following autumn... Uh, you nick the bases of all those stems and then you mound soil up through the crown of the plant so that your stems are still standing up but the soil has been mounded up around them. You then keep that moist and then what happens is where you've nicked the bases of the stems, they'll all take root. And so the following winter, and layering is one of those things that you start this winter and you can't do anything about it till the following winter, so it is a, a slowish process. Um, but the following winter... In theory, all of those stems should have produced their own root system, and so you can just snip them off with their own roots on them, and then the plant will send up a whole pile more canes. So you can keep doing that to your original stock plant, assuming, of course, you want acres of cottonus or yes. you're going into production to <laughs> yes. sell. You might regret that you started the yeah, whole process. but it's great fun. <laughs> uh, it's really quite fun. And the interesting thing with cottonus, if you do stool them down or coppice them down, um, the new shoots that come up have even bigger and often more colourful foliage on them. You don't tend to get the nice fluffy plumes in the summer so frequently because it's all fresh new growth, so you don't get as many plumes. But your summer foliage, particularly on those with burgundy or gold foliage, is particularly good if okay. it's been stooled down because they're bigger and they're shinier and they're glossier and, and uh, they're overall just better-looking foliage. Uh, and you'll still get good autumn foliage from your plants if you if you stool them down. And it is actually, without even thinking about the layering side of it, it is actually a cultural technique for using cottonus if you want them for good foliage. And, and you get these long canes that come up that waft in the air and... Creates a completely different looking plant oh, in a wood. way. Yeah. I mean, it's like a copse, yeah. really, isn't it? Yeah, of, of... exactly. And so it is a technique that you can use to grow cottonus. So okay. you don't have to let them grow into large, bulky shrubs if you don't want to. Um, so by coppicing or stooling them down every couple of years, then you have this fresh young growth all the time with extra good foliage. So uh, you could use that as a layering technique or you can use it just as a normal cultural technique to grow cottonus in a different way. So there you go. So, yeah, so layering is the way to go. Yeah, well, it's, that's interesting with the layering because I know, I mean, of course, a lot of plants do that naturally. And I'm mm. three quarters of the way through um, uh, Banksia Lady, the the um, story of Celia Rossa oh, by yes. Carolyn Langdon. And um, she tells a story about they were, um, so Celia Rossa, as some people will know, was a woman who painted all the Banksias from Monash University. And they actually went out in the field to um, get specimens of each variety. And um, they were out getting the Banksia hookeriana, I think mm. it was. And what they discovered was that there, there was no um, fruiting cones on it. And what had happened is there was a, um, the, a wheat farm quite nearby and the farmers, of course, had been spraying the wheat. Um, their pesticide had killed the wasp which actually fertilises the banksias. Oh. So the banksia had taken to um, propagating itself by layering. 
So it had actually banks, yeah. taken over. So mm. yeah, they had they had some trouble finding the uh, fruiting cones of the hookeriana. But it's just yeah, it's a. I mean, there are quite a few plants which um, are known for layering, aren't they? Some you of know? them well known for layering. Yeah, Blackberries well being a <laughs> yeah. very good example thereof. Yeah. Uh, so, but yes. it's something we can take advantage of oh, as gardeners, oh, yes. you know. Yeah. And, and it's not one of those techniques that well, the nursery trade very rarely use it now because it's very time consuming and it takes up a lot of space. Uh, so it's not commercially a very uh, logical way of doing things. But for the home gardener, mm. um, it's a perfectly logical way of, of gaining a new plant, mm. you know, apart from going out and buying it from me. Um, so, yeah, layering is, is a lot of fun. Um, I think it's really useful with something like rosemary. If it's mm. getting too woody, mm. um, it's a chance to create a whole new rosemary bush yeah. simply by la- And it layers so easily. Oh, yeah. They're yeah. very quick. A and- lot of those plants, they hit the ground and they'll send out roots. Yep. So it's, 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 it's quite a good technique. And uh, well, um, actually, if you find plants that have layered down themselves, the technical term for that is Irishman's cuttings because <laughs> uh, they've already got roots on. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's a, it's a great way of doing it. So if you want more cottonous, that's certainly the way to go from a home gardener's perspective. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, that uh, Open Gardens ticket has gone for those people that tried to ring in. And um, I stand corrected. The uh, Lee and Gather show is Thursday, Friday and Saturday, mm. not the Sunday, yeah. which is why your opening is Thursday. on the Thursday. Yes, I'll be down there for the Thursday. <laughs> and you're officially opening it at 3.30. There you go. Isn't it nice? You, you know there's somebody out there who's listening who has all the details, <laughs> so I don't have to think about exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And one... one, one uh, <clears throat> One thing I didn't know about it, there's a free bus that's going to shuttle people to two open gardens in conjunction with the show. Fantastic. Oh, that means so you don't excellent. even have to think about how to get there no. or where to park or anything like that. Get you yourself can... down to Lee and Gather and not only are you going to see the show, but you can see two open gardens. Fabulous. Perfect. All right. As I said, uh, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We'd love to hear from you this morning. If you'd like to phone in with a gardening question, 94190155. Shane, to get back to you, you've you've said some of the oils you've just been judging were exceptional. Do you think this is the best year yet, or do you think our quality is gradually over the years just improving because people know what they're doing? Or and how do we go by world standards? That's what I always want to know. Right, uh, <laughs> some good questions. The I've had to do a lot of thinking about the shows this year. That taking over as the head judge for the Australian Olive Association means that. Um, I've got to put a lot of things in place for now and into the future, judges training and industry training, different bits and pieces. And I want to get that done and I've also got to start getting us on song and on message. So something like the Australian Food Awards is absolutely stunning. It's it's not a juggernaut, it's a a race car that's set up as a marketing point. Um, they, they, They really are a swift flowing organisation and I don't know I think you've got to be really well prepared when you put a product in with them to as to where they're going to take you and that product so getting that started and getting an idea of where we're we're going we'll possibly be getting an international show by next year because we're benchmarking against international oils which is critical the Australian oils at New York this year, uh, 50% of the oils that went there took out stunning medals. Gold, best in class, not best in show this year. The company that's taken best in show 
three times in the last four years weren't successful this year. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're sneaking up onto that world stage. Mm. Um, I think I think we've impacted on the world stage the the hygiene and the thinking and the horticultural practices in Australia, the food handling practices. Uh, when you go into an industry that's 10,000 years old with a fresh mind, mm. sometimes that can be a really positive thing. The shows themselves, when you stop to think about them, have been a really great benchmarking format for the industry itself. So to put an oil into a show to have it considered for an award, to receive an award. Um, I'm trying to explain to people that um, a bronze medal is a really good oil. To have achieved that, you've done so much really good work uh, and you can stop and just, 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 just revel in the fact that, yes, because... So this doesn't mean you're just third best. No, 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 no. It's it's a it's it's to a standard. And with with olive oil or with extra virgin olive oil, the first consideration is fault because the Lampante ordinary virgin olive oils are faulted, and something's gone wrong in the process or in the handling, uh, or in the storage, and it's a it's a taint in the taste. Mm-hmm. To get to extra virgin, you've got you've got clear of all of that, so that's an achievement anyway, and it's, it's actually a great achievement. Um, so you get to there, then you've done something something more, and you've got up to a bronze medal standard, and that's a really good oil, and that's an oil you're going to revel in using in the kitchen day in and day out. If you're getting a bronze medal every year, you've got an amazing consistency in what you're doing. Or if you're, getting, if you're making a number of oils, if you're getting a number of bronze medals, there's people who are getting silver medals and they're doing more um, and they're doing more well. So, And that, that's the bit that we're, I'm setting about getting people to start defining. Like The great question is, how did you do it? Nobody can answer you, but it's at least the question's out there and people are starting to think about it. So those silver medals, they're just beautiful oils. And you sit there and you stop for a minute because it's, 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 a, it's a delightful moment. You've just got to savour the different tastes. And the next confusing thing with it is all these oils have different taste and flavour and aroma profiles. So you're getting your head around that and you're... You're sort of starting to write down numbers and the oil's just getting longer and longer and longer and you're just changing your numbers and you're changing your numbers and you've just got an oil that's sitting there, but you've got your hands wide open and you're thinking, wow. <laughs> so you're enjoying that and then you've got to go to the people who are winning silver medals constantly or blending their oils to up to a silver medal oil standard constantly and you think, gee, they're doing really well. And then you go up to gold medal and somebody was explaining that gold medal, if you're lucky enough to be able to buy a bottle of that and give it as a gift, you have just given a gift that's really stunning. Um, and to be the recipient of that gift means you're special. Uh, to be using yeah, well, it, well, I'm obviously not special. Then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be using that at home cooking, uh, life's absolutely stunning. There's a there's so that 
using those shows as a benchmark and plotting your own growth and development, plotting the years. The years make a difference as well. The seasons make a difference. Uh, but it gives you, so we, yeah, it gives you an idea of where you're going and what you're doing. So is there, in a sense, lots of comparisons really to the wine industry in a way? Or is, or is olive oil... The show system for the olive oil industry has come out of the wine industry because the show industry was used in the wine industry as a really good development mm-hmm. tool. And it was a, so initially as a development tool and then it moves up to being a marketing tool. And it's also... It remains a good reference. If you're not winning... If you've been winning medals consistently and all of a sudden you're not winning medals... You just need to stop and look at what you're doing and how you're going about things. Olive oil is completely different to wine. Wine generally improves with age. Olive oil doesn't. Doesn't. No. Olive oil deteriorates rapidly. So heat, light, air and time will finish off an olive oil. And there's not as much snobbery in oil as wine? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> there's... Uh, for the people who are constantly winning gold medals, they can be as snobby as they like because <laughs> yes, they're, they're, yes, doing, they they're doing an exceptionally good job. Yeah. <laughs> For the people who are constantly winning silver medals, they can think about being snobby yeah. because that's a... That's, a, that's pretty good but too. No, the, it's, the, the oils aren't there to be um, encased and put in the cellar. No. The oils are there to be used and to be enjoyed and to be appreciated. Now, that does raise another question. Is there a huge price difference then between oils just because they're up there or not, as the case may be? I'll let you in on a very quiet secret. If you're buying a good Australian oil at the supermarket, um, that's money well spent. Mm. I did notice I bought a bottle of olive oil quite recently. I can't remember what the brand is, but it was actually basically vintage. It was telling you the year it was... Oh, made on the bottle, no, no, no. which I hadn't that's, seen before. That's, that's not a vintage arrangement. There's a, an argument, an argument raging between use by date on yeah. the bottle and harvest date. Mm-hmm. And what most of us are trying to do is limit, restrict the use by date because really it's this year's oil that you want to be using. Yeah. Um, they were sitting on two years as the use by date. My own thoughts are as I, I think it's completely seasonal. Mm. Uh, Eighteen months is a good time period, but the and it's, the harvest date is awkward because it's mid-year. Ah, right. So it'll be season sixteen, seventeen. Ah, I see. Um, but I'd never I seen a bottle a, dated like that. I before. saw in my brother's cupboard season thirteen, mm. and I said to him, "Mate, yes, <laughs> it's time to That's move on." That's getting a tad vintage. <laughs> Shane, how many classes are there in olive oils? Or what are the classes more specifically? There's a a light or fine or delicate oil. Uh, there's a medium. So a delicate oil has a, a lot of fruit and it's soft fruit. So it's a, the easiest way to explain it. We, we can capture fruit on the tree and if you do everything right, you put it in the bottle and you capture all of those. So delicate oils are more likely to be late season oils. And the flavour profile moves down into the berries and um, you get one right and it's just beautiful. It's just, just It really is a delicate thing. Um, there's a medium range of oils and a big pl- that becomes the tomato and the banana and the herbaceous and the 
and they're closer to a ripe oil. Um, there's also a bitterness and a pungency to those. So they're a, they're a full oil. And I was judging some of those yesterday, and that's when your arms start getting out like this. They're just beautifully balanced. Uh, all the different components are there, and yeah, a really big smile on your face. The robust oils I judged on Friday, and it's not just me judging, it's a panel of judges and it's a number of panels of judges. Uh, and the robust oils have a strong, uh, they're a greener oil. So they're more grassy. Well, grass is uh, one of the components. Mm. The, the bitterness and the pungency, uh, the, the fruit flavours are stronger, um, but also the bitterness, which is the top of your mouth, and the pungency, which is the pepper. It hits the back, the back of your throat. throat. Mm. Yeah. That's the, the, the pepper is a chilli. Uh, there's a strength to it. And they're, uh, I, I lucked it in this year. Every so often you get one that's really harsh and you're just left gasping. Uh, these were really full oils, uh, really well balanced, uh, and again, you get your arms out like this to try and encompass them. So. Mm. Well, I was lucky enough to be a recipient of one of um, Shane's wines, and I have to say, you t- take oil that little oil, oh, wine. wines, yeah, oil, <laughs> oil, oil. The connection's wine. getting yeah. too close again. Um, and you know, take that sip, and it was just magnificent. And then about two seconds after, it's like, oh my goodness, that is peppery, and yeah. that that was an incredible oil, and went within about two weeks. <laughs> Was, yeah, quite. Well, didn't get too old in the cupboard then. No, no, absolutely not. No chance of that. Okay, we must go to our first caller. We have uh, Robin online out in Narriwarren North. Good morning, Robin. Robin, Are you there, Robin? Goodness, she might be playing a concerto for us. Okay, (laughs) Robin, I think you need to uh, phone back, and we'll try and put you on uh, nice and quickly. Okay, uh, that's a reminder to all of you. If you'd like to ring in and ask a gardening question. Or an oil love, question. Or an oil question. <laughs> we'd love to hear from you. Um, we do have Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants, A.B. Bishop, of course, who's a researcher with ABC Gardening Australia, and Shane Cummins from Long Paddock Olive Rustlers in the studio this morning. So do give us a call, 9419 Stephen, while we're waiting to see if we can get Robin back, perhaps have a quick chat about what you've brought in. All right, well, let's start off with this one here because this is one of my favourite plants. Uh, I have a lot of those. (laughs) (laughs) You Uh, do. (laughs) Yeah, I have a lot of favourite plants. Uh, This is Ferula, uh, Ferula communis subspecies Glauca, which means it has slightly bluish leaves, but it's... You'd have to see the other one to really understand Yeah, I was going to say, it. it's not really Glaucus. No, no, it? it's not really Glaucus. But if you see the, the normal form, it's a really rich dark green. So they, it does sort of look Glaucus against so the other one. relative Glaucus. Relative Glaucus, yes. Uh, Glaucus-ish. Um, they're commonly known as giant fennels. They're not truly a fennel, but they're in the same family. They don't have the aniseedy smell and they're not a culinary herb. But as a foliage plant in the garden, they are amazing because they're winter growing. So by midwinter, you've got this mound about a metre high and a metre wide of this fine filigreed foliage when the rest of your perennial board is asleep. So it's really good for that sort of winter effect because it it goes dormant in the late summer Mm. and it's dormant through the autumn understandably considering it's Mediterranean in origin. So it disappears when the weather gets hot and dry uh, and it comes back when the rains come in. So it's a winter-oriented perennial. 
and it flowers in the spring. I've got one a, one that's sort of halfway to flowering now. And when it sends up a flower stalk, it, uh, a well-grown ferula can send up a flower stalk that can be three metres or more tall. So you get, you get this trunk that comes up and then it branches and it has whirls of yellow flowers, very like a giant version of culinary fennel. Um, and it's all very see-through. So it's one of those plants you can have sort of towards the front of a border to take that greengrocer's staging mm. effect away. Mm. You know how easy it is? You, you plant out a border and yeah, you have the little all, ones yes. at the bottom and you, you <laughs> work your up. way back. Yeah, and so you end up with this very staged look to a border. If you use the ferula towards the front of a border, uh, you can see through it at the plants behind and also it does its thing in the winter when everything else is dormant anyway. Uh, and it's giant flower spikes when they, they come up are seriously dramatic. Uh, the hoverflies and bees and things appreciate it greatly when it's in flower. Um, it will likely self-seed itself around your garden. Um, I don't ever find it comes up in great thuggish drifts or anything uh, and obviously if you've got enough seedlings coming on in the garden well then just decapitate it before it goes to seed mm. uh, I find it hard to do that because even the dead sculptural effect of the old flower stems can be quite telling in the garden uh, so I'm more inclined to dig out excess seedlings than to cut it down earlier but if you don't want to keep it there and it can be a bit monocarpic so when when a plant flowers it will sometimes fade out after flowering okay but it normally doesn't flower in the second year like a biennial would it could be the third or fourth year along before it gets enough oomph to flower and having said that I've got a clump of the non-glaucous form in the garden at home going into flower at the moment um, and that same clump has been there for about 10 years and it's, it keeps flowering every year so there seems to be enough sort of offsets and things in the clump to have kept it going but if it flowered younger it might have gone out in one fell swoop mm. uh, but I think the ferulas are a great plant and historically they're interesting because in fact the ferulas stem was probably the first Olympic torch so there's a bit of a segue mm -hmm. to what's going on around the world <laughs> at the moment because um, these stems are full of pith and so if you had visions of an Olympic athlete naked running up Mount Olympus with this flaming torch, think again, because it was more likely a naked man running up the Mount Olympus with something that looked like a smouldering cigarette. Because <laughs> that's how a ferula would have burnt. It wouldn't have burnt yep. with this great flame. Which it would flames, have been a smouldering yep. stem. Uh, which is they... why the flame lasted. Yeah, that's right, exactly. So, so it was used for that. There's a species of ferula supposedly that is extinct that was so important in its time and, and it was obviously so commonly used that nobody actually knows what it was used for, but it was worth more than its weight in gold. And it was used for some sort of medical thing that we've never been able to figure out what it is um, because everybody knew about it at the time it was being used. So nobody actually thought to write it down. Mm. Um, but it, the plant itself was worth a fortune. And that apparently is now an extinct species. They've never oh. been able to find it again. Um, so it's a really interesting group of plants. Um, the biggest growing one, Ferula linkii, comes from the Canary Islands. And you can end up with a metre and a half to two metre high mounds of foliage. And the, and the flowering stem can go up to four metres. Mm -hmm. um, and they all have similar form, similar foliage. And I've seen them growing in the wild in Crete. And they, they grow up in the rocky hills in, in really rubbishy soils and uh, in amongst the olive groves and, and all sorts of really difficult places. So it's certainly a plant that can grow very easily for us. Now, is that three in that pot? Uh, it probably is three seedlings in the pot yep. uh, because I'm generally quite generous with it when I get a batch of seedlings going because there's a lot of them usually. Yep. And I quite like to put more than one in a pot anyway because you tend to then find one will dominate so it'll flower first and then you've still got to follow on in case you didn't get seedlings coming up around the plant so that mm. you can get it 
settled into the garden. So, yes, the three seedlings in this pot almost look like they're at three different stages. Yeah. Yeah. So they would hopefully go on and um, and produce flowers at different seasons mm-hmm. so that it'll give you more longevity in the garden. And how quickly will one of those um, clump up and become, you know, If you planted this in the garden now, uh, next winter it will be quite a big clump. Okay. One of them may flower, but it's more likely it'll carry on to the following year before it does. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, a waiting game with it, but its foliage is so entertaining in the meantime anyway, as spectacular as the flower spikes are, I would grow it if it did nothing else. Mm, yeah, very you know, sweet foliage. Uh, it's a lovely, lovely leaf. So mm. uh, I think it's a worthwhile plant. And I do love things in that carrot family. They, they have a sort of sense about them that is dainty and yet bold. And so, you know, all those types of plants I think are great in the garden. Mm. So ferula, F-E-R-U. ULA for anybody who wants to do some Googling and find out more about the genus. Terrific. We do have Robin back, so let's go to Robin in Narriwarren North. Good morning, Robin. Oh, good morning, everyone. I'm, I do apologise. That's okay. I breathed on the wrong button on the phone. Oh, is that what happened? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was looking at my delightful love like camellia and uh, something went wrong. Um, the leaves on the camellia, though, the, I was going to ask you about pruning an English box or pruning anything to avoid gummosis, and I can't think of the technical term. Um, but the, can I ask you about the love like camellia first? The leaves are turning yellow, and I uh, thought you'd know better than anyone. Well, if, if you've got a camellia with yellowing leaves, it sounds to me like it is hungry. Mm, and... I think it might be, but I'm... Sure. Yeah, so and now's a good time to be feeding the garden in general. So uh, uh, I bought home a whole pile of duck manure the other day, ready to start broadcasting all over the place. Um, so I'd be inclined to feed your camellias now, um, a good general purpose feed or some good animal manure, preferably not something that's alkalinish in, in reaction, as duck manure could be. So probably cow, horse, guinea pig. Something that's not a, a poultry type creature's manure would be fine, um, and uh, yeah, just just give it a good dose of, of fertilizer at this time of the year, and it should help green it up. I would check your drainage though too, just in case. Yeah, that should be okay, Stephen. Um, are those are the manures better than a purchased product? Well, the, most of the purchased products, when we're talking about fertilisers, we're talking about chemical fertilisers. Uh, they work very fast. Uh, they can green up a camellia very well if you're using the right sort of acidic fertilisers. Um, but I think they do nothing for the soil. And that's mm. my big issue with those sorts of fertilisers. In fact, right. used a lot, they can actually be detrimental to a soil. That's a really good point that you hardly ever hear mentioned. <laughs> yeah, so uh, a lot of those chemical fertilisers can, in fact, have an impact on soil-borne organisms like bacteria, worms, oh. all sorts of fungi. critters, fungi yeah. and all that stuff. So although they can work quite quickly, they can green up a plant fast, um, if I was panicking about a really special plant and I knew that it just needed a quick feed, then I might use it once just to bring the plant back. Mm. But then I'd be more inclined to stick with my organic fertilisers right. and mulches and composts okay. and all that sort of stuff. Because once you get the balance back and right, yeah. then things sort of settle down again. Yeah, um, that's saying feed the soil, not the plant. Yeah, and the exactly. Plant and that's anyway. what you're doing is you're feeding the soil. Yeah. And I think if you've got your, your microflora and fauna going well in your ground, well, then your plants benefit. So so I do avoid the chemical or mineral fertilisers as much as possible uh, and I use them as a last resort. How long should it be before it uh, writes, uh, comes to write? 
Well, it's, going to, it's a little bit like asking how long's a piece of string. It's going mm. to be very dependent on how yellow the camellia's got, how much fertiliser you put down. Um, but, you know, you should start to see changes in four or five weeks, I would oh, hope. Okay. Can I ask you a quick question about pruning? Mm. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Oh, sorry. sorry, I, I went mm, very quietly. <laughs> Definitely not. No more questions. <laughs> yes. Uh, just when to prune shrubs, certain shrubs, to avoid the gummosis. And I cannot remember that term, the correct term for gummosis. That, um, that is the correct term. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah it's, it's actually a disease, although it's not normally an issue with box bushes I wouldn't have thought oh, right. uh, your main issue with apricots and, yeah apricots yeah, and things yeah. um, with your box with most hedges the pruning regime should be done when the weather's cool mm-hmm. because if you prune when it's hot then leaves that weren't exposed to the sun suddenly are and then you get burning right. so really the main thing is is to stay is to do your trimming of hedges and things in the cooler weather Right. Asuya is one of the things I'm thinking of. Yeah, well, conifers you you can prune again, and I do them in the cooler months. Mm. But be aware that most conifers you can't prune back beyond green. Yes. Uh, I mean, thuyas might actually be a, 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 a case in point that's actually different. I've got a funny feeling thuyas will actually break from old wood, but the vast majority of conifers won't. So don't prune back too hard. Right. Is the is the issue with those sorts of things. Yeah. A bit like lavender that I managed to kill a couple of, Stephen. Yes. yes, if you go back too far on lavender, you can often kill it too. Uh, but at least it's not the end of the world because you can get another lavender going that's very right. quickly. Yes, thank you very much for your patience and information. Okay, that's fine. Bye. Bye. And uh, next up we have Frank out in Craigieburn. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, all. Good morning. How are you, Frank? All right, glad to see you. Good. Um, Where's the, the olive man? The he's olive here. Yeah. And, and he's and ready listening. and waiting. And good morning. Hey, good morning there. Uh, I've got a few... I've been planting olives for a long time now, but there's still a few things I'd like to know, like hiring myself. The, um, there's a lot of different varieties, isn't there, Hollywood? A lot, a lot of different varieties, like gum trees. There's that hundreds of them, I suppose. There's a lot of different varieties. The Where I am... With the older varieties, it's taken me years and years to years to work out that some of them are predominantly pickling varieties. Pickling, uh, yes, yes. And there's others that are predominantly oil varieties. Oh, yes. Uh, you, can make all, <laughs> you can make very expensive oil out of pickling varieties because the percentage of oil is down. Yes. And you can pickle, the other, uh, you can pickle oil olives. It comes down to taste. Pickling, yes. Uh, well, uh, what I'd like to know is... Been so many different varieties. I've just planted them as a lack of fair, you know. Just uh, planted them anywhere amongst it, amongst the the lot, you know. Plant all varieties together, put it that way. Yeah. Now, uh, is there a chance of them interpollinizing, like uh, interpollin? You know, like if you plant pumpkins, different you get different pumpkins. Is there any way that they could interpollinize themselves? You know, like. It's called. Uh, it's actually a pollinator. So, and the, the the benefit of the pollinators with the trees or the cross pollination amongst the trees is just setting the fruit. So, unless you're starting to get seedlings around the place, yes, uh, and that that's that's another story in itself. Yes. But no, the pollinating each cross pollination is not an issue. It's it's probably yeah, it's, it's healthy. It's healthy. Huh? Yeah. Oh, it's good. Anyhow, uh, 
Another one, another problem I've got, I have a gardener comes in, he's got a little bit of land, and he grows his own vegetables. But he, he's a good gardener in one way. He digs too near the base of the olive tree. You know, he digs right close. No matter how often I, I, I hint that it's not good for the plant, <laughs> he goes right to the base, you know. But in the other way, uh, the result is that it's very stunted. You know, it's not as big as the other trees, the bushes. Now... Uh-huh. Do those? No, that can be that can be varietal too. So, um, uh, uh, when you start talking about the shapes and sizes of olive trees, they come in all shapes and sizes. Of, of course, but he he, do, he, he doesn't do it now because he, he hasn't been he's been ill for a while. Now, will those damaged roots that you look to, you know this, uh, near the base of the tree will they keep on growing? Oh, they'll stop growing, but other 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 roots will form up and grow. It's not the, it's not the end of the, of the tree. No, nah, it's not the end of the tree. So, somebody wanted to know how long olive trees will grow, and four or five oh, yes. thousand years oh, yes, yes. comes up. Oh, yes. So I would. Yeah. <laughs> they should be. They should outlast you, Frank. <laughs> oh yes. Oh, there's one olive tree in uh, Jerusalem or somewhere. That was uh, when Christ was born or something. Mm. Anyhow, well, uh, what the another one is. Uh, as you say, they come in all shapes and sizes. The trouble is, how do you reach the top? If you get too tall, oh, how, that's, would, how would you reach the top th- to get the fruit? There's a lovely story on that. The cherry people always reckon the best cherries grow at the top of the tree. <laughs> so to get more best cherries, they kept growing the trees taller and taller and taller. And they had to. They had to. That got really tricky for them to pick them. Is that why they invented cherry pickers? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so recently, they got very clever, and they cut the trees down to a level where they could work with them. Oh yes, that's what I want to know. You see, the olive tree. We don't prune them. A lot of the shoots come up from the base. You know. Oh no! Take the shoots off from the base. The tree's very lazy, and it will always grow from the bottom rather than from the top. Oh yeah. Well, that's what I want. I don't want them too tall. No, no, no. You want the main trunk. You don't want the shoots coming up. Yeah, but how are you going to prune it? How are you going to get? Oh. how are you going to pick the fruit? <laughs> uh, when with those trees, we just go in with the chainsaw and we prune as we're picking. So instead of climbing up to the top, we just cut the top down and we pick it on the ground. There's one chap as he gets on his utility and cuts them. You know, gets the back. Yeah, yield. you've got to you've got to work safe. Mm. But oh, of course, yes. Um. We're bringing some 60-year-old trees down at the moment and we're bringing them down to probably 12 foot, 3 metres. Oh, yes. Uh, and that's taking... That's bringing them down to a third and resetting them because we've realised they're just too far away from where they want to be. A couple of quick things with pruning, uh, and it goes back to that box hedge as well. We're told we're not allowed to prune when it's raining or it's misty or it's foggy because... Oh. The, the wound won't dry properly. And the other thing with soil and manures and fertilisers, organics teaches you that yeah. uh, good healthy soil is a good healthy plant, is a good healthy animal, is good healthy people. Well, anyhow, before I go, the, uh, it's going to be a bumper year for olives, I think. Oh, I'm hoping so. <laughs> I mean, last, last year, the olives, if they did grow, with a lack of water, I suppose, and... They've got to be fertilised too, you know. Yeah. Lots of people think they weeds, but they're not. 
A lot of people think the uh, problem, Oreos, uh, but the, if you looked after the same as any other fruit tree, you, you get a good good supply. Yeah, water and compost. Water and compost. Yeah. Oh, okay now. Thanks very much. Okay, Pleasure. bye, Frank. Bye. Water and compost. Well, I'll have to um, take that advice, Shane, because we've had an olive tree in for years and years and years, and it hasn't produced one olive. Oh, it might, it might be the non-fruity <laughs> variety. Well, that's what I think. Which, and the same thing happened with our apricot tree, which was in for years and years, mm. which I moaned about pretty much every year, that it had a squillion flowers and never any fruit. And finally, I, we chopped it down this year. I was like, no. Nah, I, I bet that's a release, actually. Oh, it was so good. And it really was in the wrong spot anyway. So, you know, yeah. it was in as soon as you opened the vegetable garden gate, there it was this massive apricot tree in front of you, which I got annoyed every time I looked at because it never fruited. Yeah, well, so it was Telling you something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe I keep buying these non-fruiting varieties. Or <laughs> well, something. I know there are non-fruiting olives because there are olive varieties that have been selected because they don't fruit because they're useful as street trees yeah, and things so because then you don't get olives yeah. everywhere. Um, uh, so you could have ended up with one of those. Mm-hmm. It's always possible. But I, I have suppose. to say, I haven't tried the the composting, so I'll I'll, I'll give that a go. See what happens. All the best with that. (laughs) (laughs) I'll report back. (laughs) Okay, you are tuned into the 3CR Gardening Show. Uh, In the studio this morning, we have Stephen Ryan, A.B. Bishop and Shane Cummins. If you'd like to join us in a discussion or to ask a gardening question, the number is 94190155. That's 94190155. While we've got the chance, Stephen, let's go to another plant. Oh, which one? uh, Maybe this one. Okay. Um, this little grassy-looking plant here, which has lovely dark coppery red foliage on it, is a New Zealand rush called Uncinia. And being a rush and not a grass, it actually likes a moist spot, so it doesn't want to be in too dry a spot. Uh, I've seen this one and some of its relatives growing in sort of subalpine meadows in New Zealand. Um, and in fact, when I was a youngster and went bushwalking in New Zealand, this would have been the last plant in the world I would have thought I was going to grow because its common name is hook rush. And its seeds have a little hook on them and they attach themselves to the hairs on your leg. Oh, how nice. And if, if you, you have hairs on your legs. Well, yeah, um, <laughs> some might not, so it might be fine. Uh, but if they do attach themselves to the hair on your legs, you actually pull the hair out trying to get the hook rush off. So I have a, a vague sense of what having a full Brazilian <laughs> would be like. Uh, it's quite painful. Um, and so, yes, a, a warning has to go out with this plant if you do plant it. Don't be weeding around it with bare arms and bare legs if you've got hairs because uh, you will. You pick up the seeds on you and you go, oh, what's that? And you go to pull it off and you'll take the hair with it. Um, but it's a very pretty little plant. I mean, its colour is beautiful. Um, very only, fine, strappy. Yeah, very fine, of, yeah. strappy, grassy leaves, but there's really rich rich, chestnutty, coppery red colour. Um, it doesn't want to be in the hottest, driest spot you can find, so it needs a little bit of moisture year-round and probably a bit of shade from the hottest of the afternoon sun. It makes a nice pot plant. Um, I find in really damp spots in my garden that I will get the odd self-sown seedling, so you have to keep an eye on it. Um, but it's again, it's not one of those things that seems to come up in blankets of seedlings it's just the odd one and because of its color it's easy to pick anyway you know it's there as soon as it germinates yep um so you can keep an eye on plants like that it's the ones that look like normal lawn grass or something i actually have a problem with because it's hard to pick them from other plants uh but this you know shows itself off immediately um 
And um, I think it's a really pretty plant and it will grow to oh, 35, 40 centimetres tall, I suppose, and fractionally wider. So it's mm-hmm. not a great big plant. So it's quite useful sort of as an infill in a border or um, it would look fabulous if you've got one of those sort of pebbly garden things where you want something of an interesting colour against pale pebbles. It would look really pretty. Actually, Loretta Childs, um, our friend the landscaper, she's used it mass planted underneath a bottle tree. And until the rabbits got to it, it looked absolutely fabulous. Uh-huh. You know, just oh, so the bunnies real, ate it, did The bunnies they? ate it. Oh, yeah. damn. Yeah, they did. Uh, I, yeah, I have a feeling a lot of these grassy things, uh, herbivores would think, oh, there's an interesting colour combination that I might eat. Uh, so, yes, it could be something that wallabies and rabbits and other mm. things would have a go at. Um, but it's a really pretty and interesting New Zealand rush. So it's the hook rush uncinia, U-N-C-I-N-I-A, uncinia rubra, meaning red. Obviously. Yeah, so there are green species as well. But I think it's rather a pleasant little plant. I did see somebody selling it as red mondo grass once, which annoyed me no end. Uh, It ain't and uh, and shouldn't be marketed that way. Uh, I don't know who was doing it. And even if I did, I probably wouldn't mention it on air. But whoever you are, don't do it again. Uh, It's a New Zealand hook rush. It's not mondo grass, which is not even a grass either. But there you go. Uh, So the uncinia, I think it's very pretty. If it's a rush, would it cope at the edge of a pond? Yeah, yeah, it's very good. It's actually very soon, good in, 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 I was going to say, it not likes moist conditions, but it'll actually grow very well in wet conditions. Okay. So, yes, if you've got sort of a muddy edge to a pond or something like that and you want something to grow there, mm. um, yes, it would be a, a highly desirable plant for those conditions. I have to say, though, it will probably self seed itself in the mud all around the parent plant, so you'll yep. end up with a drift of it. Uh, but that might actually be but a But as long as you're aware thing. of that, that mm. could yeah. look fantastic. Yeah, it could. And, and certainly if you're trying to hide the edge, of a pond or something like that, well, it, it could, in fact, be a good plant for that. Mm. I think it would even go underwater temporarily if it had to. So if the water levels were going up and down up and because down, of yep. the weather, uh, I think it would even cope with that quite well. Okay. And I know having walked through the, some of these subalpine damp meadows in New Zealand, it's pretty squelchy where some of this stuff grows. Yep. So, uh, yeah, so you could consider it as a sort of a semi-submersible plant even. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, really interesting thing. Okay. Before we move on to another plant, I have to tell you, you'll never guess what has um, grown in my vegetable garden at this time of the year. Oh, how many guesses do we get? (laughs) We might need a few. I've got a feeling Pam's got something really weird that's happened in her vegetable garden. No, no, no. It's just, look, it happened last year, but it's happened again this year. I've got my first asparagus. Oh, already? Already. Yeah. Well, that's a good thing, I suppose, as long as well, there's enough of it to make a meal out no, of. No, I've got one. Oh, one. Uh, yeah, one asparagus uh, shoot is not a meal, uh, unfortunately. But I remember I remember this yep. happened to me last year too. Then there was a gap of, of you know, a few weeks yeah. before they all started coming up. But it's done it again and I don't know what's going on. Mm. Yes, you've got the variety Precox. Uh which means the early one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, just throwing in a bit more botanical Latin there. Um yeah, it is odd. You know, some weird things do happen in our gardens, and most of the time, I don't think we need to worry about it. It's just one of those strange. Oh, I'm not things worrying that about it. Yeah, for instance, my chilies are still ripening on the bush. I'm Gosh. I'm picking red chim- chilies. Well, that wouldn't be happening at Macedon, I'll tell you that for sure. <laughs> oh, did you get snow, by the way? Uh, we did, we got a sprinkling of snow that landed in our garden, but it was just enough to look like a frost, really. Uh, 
where the nursery is, we had enough that it made a little bit of a layer. Uh, but then once you got up the mountain proper, they closed the road. So we did get enough up there for the police to decide it wasn't a very wise idea to let the tourists in because then they spend the rest of the day pulling them back onto the road. Yep. <laughs> um, and so they did actually close the road off, much to the annoyance of the people who have the tea rooms at the top of the mm. mountain because <laughs> they were shut off and they yeah. couldn't make any money out of anybody. <laughs> um, so we did get a little bit of snow. but um, And certainly this winter did feel more like I remember winters being mm. i have to say definitely you know they when i was a kid they were wet they were cold we got snow we got frost we got all the different things that should be happening in winter and this winter has felt a little bit more like that so uh, i guess that's a good thing oh it's a great thing mm. yep yep we're in for a good springtime Hey, Bea, you've brought in plant two. Let's go to one of yours. I have. I've brought in um, one that's indigenous to my area, and it's a lovely little Coria. It's uh, Coria glabra, and this one is um, Coliban River, the cultivar or the form. And um, it's uh, it's actually native all the way from Brisbane down the east coast and then back up towards Adelaide. Doesn't doesn't go into Tasmania at all. And... Um, I haven't actually used it in the garden before, but I um, have decided to put it in. It's got a slightly um, lighter green leaf to, to some of the couriers, um, but it gets to about um, around about two metres and then two to three metres maybe and then a metre, a metre and a half across. And I'm going to prune it really heavily. I've got a few to put in uh, a particular area. It's got that um, typical um, lovely little sort of um, bell-shaped courier flower, sort of limey green. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think it'll it'll bush up really well and get a bit of brightness into a particular area. So yeah, and um, yeah, it looks like it's going to be a good little plant. Okay, that's yeah, Coria glabra. So you're going to keep them down a bit? You I, said? I will. Yeah, I'll yep. probably keep it to about maybe um, a meter and a half um, if if the rabbits let it grow that big. <laughs> yes. um, <laughs> well, I have to say, as much as I moan about the rabbits, you know, when they finally leave the couriers alone, they been tip pruned to within an inch of their lives so they're really bushy and shrubby and they come up really well so i'm hoping that'll happen with with these ones as well and yeah so it's um it's quite exciting been getting a whole lot of plants in the garden got some more hakea decurrens in and um um, because they're going so well out there i'm trying to create a hedge of them Mm. because the little birds love them of course because they're so needly so prickly and um they're not so friendly to the garden when you back into them (laughs) or when you're trying to um i was trying to get the seed from them so yeah yeah, put in the car and um open the seeds up um put it in the warmth of the car in an envelope um and oh boy oh boy injuries just yeah trying to prune them off but uh yeah so i've got that in and got some more um our native banksia is marginata which of course is quite a tall tree and um but i found a prostrate form well i'd found a prostrate form last year which was from crow along and put that in and it turned its toes up very quickly but i found another prostrate form from portland so i'm giving that one a go just just to see if maybe it'll take to our our climate a bit more um a bit more readily than the crow along form so mm. it's all about experimenting i suppose absolutely and, yeah yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, there's a lot going on. Put in some more uh, Dianella tasmanica because um, 
I've worked out the rabbits really don't like it. So what I do is I I just protect the roots of it because what they've been tending to do if I, if I let it leave it open is they go down and they dig around and get to the roots of the plant, but they don't like the you know quite oh, thick strappy foliage. It's very fibrous. Too, it is it? very be, fibrous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So nobody's eating it. So I'm just chopping the bottom out of pots, putting it over the top, so the the top of the plant is still exposed. Mm. And no one's eating it, which makes me really excited. So I've actually got plants growing in the garden. Wow. Hurrah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. It, it is one of those things, though, that you know, what else do you do? I mean, the creatures are there, yeah. so you've got to It's constant experimenting. You do have to work around them because, I mean, you, out in the bush you can't get rid of the rabbits. No, of course it's, you can't. And it's just it's too hard. So, you know, I've got my bird cages over a few things and wait until they harden up and then remove them. And, yeah, so getting there slowly. Good. Which is nice. Excellent. We are running through till 9.15, which means we've got about roughly just under half an hour if uh, people would like to join us. You are, of course, listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Do give us a call, 94190155, if you'd like to join us on air. We do have Stephen Ryan in the studio, A.B. Bishop and Shane Cummins this morning, so we can talk about just about anything, I think. Natives, <laughs> exotics, um, olives, olive oil, so yeah. you name it. We'd love to hear from you, 94190155. Okay, Stephen, next one. All right, well, I thought this was an interesting plant to bring along. This is Hyacinthus orientalis, and this is the wild version of those big, fat, sassy hyacinths that we buy bulbs of and pot up and enjoy the perfume of and and what have you. And it shows you what the simple wild form looks like Mm. uh, when you compare it to the modern hybrid forms. I mean, this plant has a fairly thin stem with three flowers on the top. You can get more but you probably wouldn't get any more than seven or eight on a well-grown plant. Uh, It has the same uh, waxy, thick, textured petals that you get in the modern hybrids, and, and it has a hyacinth perfume. Oh, yes. So it's got quite a strong scent. A lot of scent. perfume for a little flower. Yeah, for a, for a wee little flower. Uh, and there's something sort of simple and straightforward and cute about it. I mean, I've got some blue hybrid hyacinths coming out to flower in the garden at the moment. And they're sort of a power under themselves. They don't sort of blend with things. They don't mix in with things. They're these chunky, fat, blue things with heavy leaves at the bottom of them. And they're fun. I'm enjoying them. But they have... For me, they have very little garden context. You know, they just don't look natural. Mm. Uh, so in a pot, hyacinths are great value because you can take them inside and enjoy mm, the perfume and sure. all that sort of stuff. But these ones in the garden, I'd got them from Tesla's with a batch of other stuff I'd bought from Tesla's. And it's not something I'd normally plant. I thought, oh, I haven't had hyacinths in the ground for years, so I'll plonk some hyacinths in. And look, they're, they're there is all I can say of them. Mm. Um, if I'd been sensible, I probably should have put them in a pot because um, uh, they really don't blend into anything around them. But this little wild one looks more like a bluebell. Yes. So it's got that sort it's of... It's got that quality to yeah, it. Yeah, but it doesn't take off like a rampageous thug like bluebells do. Uh, so it's a much more manageable plant. And in fact, I wish it would multiply just fractionally faster so I could get more of it. Um, it does come in white and pink versions. Uh, so even amongst the wild populations, you'll get white and pink ones. Uh, so obviously when they started breeding the different colours and forms in hyacinths, the, the, the genetics were there. 
already. Uh, although God only knows where they got the yellow from, because um, you can get sort of yellowish hyacinths now. Um, but yes, I think Hyacinthus orientalis is a very pretty little bulb. You don't see it for sale very often, probably because it is so slow to multiply. Mm. Um, and I don't sell a lot of it because I don't think people... People look at it and they go, oh, bluebells. It doesn't sort of impinge Register on Register as a yeah. hyacinth. Yeah, yeah it doesn't even different. look like a hyacinth, No, no. Really. well, not what we assume a hyacinth No, that's should. right. Yeah. Uh, so it's not one of those bulbs that has had much of a, a coverage in the press or anything like that, but I just think it's a dainty and interesting little bulb. Um, it's Mediterranean in origin, so it should be quite an easy bulb for us to grow in our own gardens here. Uh, it won't deteriorate and go off eventually like the, the hybrid hyacinths have a tendency to do. Mm. Um, in fact, they're a bit like some of your tulips. You're probably better to buy fresh bulbs every year or two and, and start off with fresh ones because they do tend to degenerate back to very poor forms eventually or disappear altogether, uh, whereas the wild species will persist and just keep coming up every year and be basically much as it was the year before. Mm. It's really interesting seeing the species variety because, um, you know, we're, we're doing a story at the moment with Angus Stewart and um, Digby Grounds, who's the uh, senior plant breeder at Kings Park, yep. and um, the story's called Wild at Heart, and they've they've got this breeding program over there with you know six of the most popular um, natives, you know grevilleas and baronias yeah. and, and and various things, and um, you know it's all about. Um, you know, for example, roses and camellias have been cultivated for, you know, thousands of years and we're kind of playing catch up a bit with our Australian natives to make them suitable for the home garden, you know. So it's it's always really interesting. You know, Digby goes out into the wild and he'll find you know, plants that he thinks will be suitable for cultivation and breeding and brings them back and, you know, they're, you know, creating different colours and creating more compact forms. And and it's all about, yeah, getting it to a point where um, it really thrives in people's gardens because, you know, of course, a lot of Australian plants, especially especially from Western Australia, you know, they're... they're um, they're grown in these really, they've evolved in these really particular conditions, you know, really mm. poor soils and harsh weather and whatnot. And suddenly we bring them into our gardens and they don't know what to do. They've got this good soil and, you know, oh, goodness, I'm getting watered every week. What's going on yeah. here? Yep. And they turn up their toes. So they're trying to breed these qualities into them, which, you know, make, makes them, um, you know, more disease-resistant, hardier, longer flowering and whatnot. And, but it's always so lovely to see the species yeah. form, isn't it? And, of course, well, things like hyacinths, I mean, they've been bred by the Dutch and, and others from from the original sort of strains that probably came in from Turkey or other parts of the Mediterranean. And they've been doing that for, you know, probably two or 300 years. So, you know, so they've started off with a simple wild plant mm. and they've created these amazing man-made forms, uh, which still have their place, but, I do like to bring but back they're the they're so species. different, aren't they? I yeah. mean, this has got three little flower heads yeah. on it and hyacinths, as we know, are just absolutely jam-packed yeah. with, yeah, yeah this, just This a, sort of rod of, yeah, of flowers. Of flowers. And even the foliage, this I mean... so delicate. The leaves on this are a fraction of the size of the hybrid stuff. Yep. Uh, so it's a much daintier plant all round. Uh, but certainly, if you've got a little colony of this, the perfume from it will be every bit as good uh, as the, the hybrid ones. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, but, you know... They all have their place, and and you know these pinnacles of breeding programs, sometimes rather naff pinnacles of. Uh, I mean, when you get sort of twelve foot gladioli's and 
dahlias the size of soup terrines, um, it starts to get a little out of hand, it I does. think. <laughs> you know, it loses the point other than to put it on the show bench. Mm, yep. um, but if we're breeding for garden worthiness, well then, yeah, I think that's a, a laudable thing to do, mm. whether it be natives or exotic plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we get Graham in here talking about roses regularly enough and, and there seems to be much more of an emphasis on growing disease-free, highly yep. perfumed, appropriate roses for gardens now instead yep. of this sort of perfect bud-shaped form that you sort of want for a cut flower type rose. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, it's good to see that we're actually looking at it from a, the perspective of what's going to have garden merit. Mm. Mm. I agree. Yep. Let's go next to Jan, who's in Baldwin. Good morning, Jan. Oh, hi, everyone. Lovely to have all this rain, isn't it? Oh, great. Sure is. Um, I wanted to naturalise a lot of daffodil bulbs in, around my property because it's a big place. Yeah. And I had a success with the ones I put in, but I didn't put many in because I just couldn't dig the soil at the right time. <laughs> yes. So would it be okay for me to pop them in now? If they're growing plants, I assume, or are they dormant bulbs you've they're still They're dormant bulbs. Oh, God. Well, you do need to get them in as quickly as possible. They won't perform terribly well this year because they're going to try and play catch-up. Mm. Uh, but as long as the bulbs are firm and, and, and healthy-looking... I'd get them in as soon as possible. So it won't muck up their cycle if I pop them in now, you know. Well, it'll ruin uh, their cycle is already a bit it's mucked ruined. up for this year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they'll settle down again for next year. Oh, that's okay. But don't leave it any longer than you can humanly do because they they've lost part of the season to get their roots up and going and then to bring their tops up. So you need to get them in really quick smart. Okay. But don't like expect too much from today. them this season. Okay, thanks very much everyone. That's okay. a pleasure. Bye. Bye. Yes, there's certainly no point in holding them over for next year. No, no. Because <laughs> that would be, you know, that would be the end of them by then. That's right. Um, but it's amazing how tough those things are. Actually, with daffodils, if I find one that I want in somebody else's garden, I don't wait for it to go dormant. I ask if I can have one first, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then I lift them then. Yep. And I've never lost a daffodil lifting it in flower. Mm. Uh, in fact, I can remember years ago when one of the Detmans had died in his property up in... Where was he? Coldstream or somewhere out that side of town. I can't remember exactly where it was now. It was many, many years ago. Uh, we were offered the opportunity to go up and get some daffodils. And so we went up and dug them out of the ground in full bloom because uh, it was the only time you could tell what was what uh, and brought them home to our garden at Mount Masset and plonked them in the ground, watered them in, and they didn't stop flowering. <laughs> you know, I mean, some of the leaves fell over, um, but you could have assumed the daffodils had been there the whole season. They just didn't look back. Yep. And, of course, the next year they came up perfectly well and all that sort of thing. So uh, they're fairly forgiving, but you certainly don't want to hold dormant bulbs over for too long. No, no, no. I'm I'm really enjoying the daffodils in my garden at the moment. They're mm. just glorious at yeah. the moment. It's a good season for them. It's They've really been enjoyed great. the winter rains. Yes. Uh, a lot of my small bulbs actually are, are really enjoying this season. Mm. It's been amazing. I've had things flowering better this year than I've had for quite some years. Uh, even some of the really difficult to grow stuff that I always wait and see whether it's going to come up again this year, like my Fritillaria imperialis that's in the garden at home. And it sent up two spikes this year from what was originally one bulb. So oh, good. it's obviously multiplying yeah. and it's already setting buds mm-hmm. in the top. So in another couple of weeks, it'll be in flower. Fantastic. Um, so yeah, the bulbs have been good this year and the daffodils are looking very cheery. Mm. Yep, definitely. Mm. Okay, that number again, uh, we are finishing at 9.15, our usual time slot. So if you'd like to jump on board and give us a call, 94190155. Another one there, Steve. All right, well, I've got another plant that I bought along, which is something fairly 
fairly ordinary in a sense, but it's one of those shrubs that I think uh, should be looked at a little bit more, uh, and that's the pyruses, the lily of the valley shrubs. This is the straight form, uh, pyrus japonica. Uh, you can get pink ones, you can get dwarf ones, you can get variegated leafed ones. Uh, there's a whole range of different cultivars now. There's some that get brilliant red new growth on them after the flowers are finished. Uh, so there's a whole range of them, and they all have these cute as a button little white lily of the valley, or pink, as the case may be, depending on the variety, uh, drooping spikes of flowers on them at this time of the year. And the reason I think pyruses should be looked at a bit more is that I'm tired of fighting azaleas. <laughs> I don't want to have to deal with petal blight. I don't want to have to deal with, with lacewing. I don't want to have to deal with, with rhododendron rust. I don't want to have to deal with any of those issues that the rhododendron azalea complex seem to have found. So if I want something that's a nice evergreen bushy shrub that likes a little bit of shade and and obviously like azaleas and rhododendrons prefers an acid soil, uh, then I'd be very tempted to look at pyrus as an alternative. Um, They have a long flowering period. They actually have more interesting foliage after flowering than the average azalea has even if it hasn't got lacewing. Um, And of course many of them get pretty new growth on them which most azaleas don't bother to try and do. Uh, They make great tub specimens, so if you're looking for an interesting pot plant for a semi-shaded spot, then a pyrus could be the go. Mm. Uh, And because there's a whole range of different forms and from smallish ones up to largish ones and different colours now, uh, there is a bit of variety amongst them to select from. So I and they don't seem to have any of those bugs and pests that the rhodes and azaleas get. So you treat them in the same way as far as growing conditions is concerned, uh, but they're a lot more carefree. Uh, so I think the pyrus are a well worthwhile growing group, and they flower young. I mean, this is one in a in a six inch pot. Um, it's laden in flowers, you know. So even as a small size, you can get. Quite a lot of. <laughs> uh, okay, dear. I'm going to move on to another announcement. Uh, this is one you might know about, AB. Um, Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group. They've got their uh, native plant and book sale coming up on the 10th of September, uh, 10 a.m. through till 4 p.m. And this is being held at the Eltham Senior Citizen Centre, which is at 903 Main Road there in Eltham. They will have a huge range of native and indigenous plants, including short and tall grafts, uh, and it's organised by the Australian Plants Society Yarra Yarra Group. If you'd like more information on that one, uh, their phone number is 94397228. That's 94397228. You're... Are you still a member? You're not a member anymore. You I are am still a, a member. member. Yes, I even occasionally get to go along. <laughs> <laughs> when when things, yeah, oh, it always something always seems to bump into a different date, and you know, you, sometimes you can make it, and sometimes you can't. But they've always got good speakers on there, so mm. yeah, do try Excellent. and get along. Yes, okay. Now, one I really must uh, mention. I haven't mentioned it for a couple of weeks, but this is a a big reminder for everyone's diaries and uh, this is the Kangaroo Paw celebration down at Cranbourne Gardens. Now, it's not happening until uh, later in the year, in fact, uh, November, but um, this is going to be just a, an amazing event. Mm. Um, first up, it's starting with a Kangaroo Paw picnic. This is being held over the weekend of Saturday the 19th and Sunday the 20th of November. 
Uh, now, there's going to be guided tours by Angus Stewart. And, of course, Angus is launching his... Uh, his new uh, Kangaroo Paw Landscape Violet at 11 o'clock on the Saturday. There'll be special Growing Friends plant sales of kangaroo paws and cottonheads. There'll be floral art demonstrations with kangaroo paws and Australian plants. Live music by Dan Arnott, who is actually John's son. Mm. Oh, really? Yes. Fantastic. Dan what Arnott. a talented family. Dan Arnott and the Gardener's Bluegrass Band. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I like Fantastic. that. I do like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, everyone will be able to have the opportunity to vote for the best kangaroo paw competition. Uh, there'll be displays by sponsors, public gardens in the Melbourne region. So that's on the weekend of Saturday the 19th, Sunday the 20th of November. Does one suggest one should hop to it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay. And following that, on the following Thursday to Saturday... They are holding a three-day symposium on the kangaroo paw family and and its its other relatives. So day one, which will be Thursday, the twenty fourth of November, will be basically a science day. Now this is this is designed for people who are actually working in botanical, horticultural, and zoological mm. sciences. Uh, this one will be taking place in Melbourne at Domain House, uh, which of course is in Dallas Brooks Drive there in uh, South Yarra. 8.30 for a 9 o'clock start. Day two on the Friday will take place down at the Tarnak Room in the Australian Garden at Cranbourne Gardens. This is the professional day. So this is talking all about breeding, marketing, design, cultivation and diseases. So mm. this is specifically for those people who are working in the nursery trade or landscapers, um, etc. Day three is the Home Gardener's Day. And, uh, again, this is taking place down at the Tarnook Room in the Australian Garden at Cranbourne. 9 o'clock for a 9.30 start. Now, registrations are actually open because these symposiums, of course, uh, you do need to book for them. Uh, there is a cost. Uh, for the Thursday, if you're uh, a member of the Friends Group, 175. If you're a non-member, 200. Students, 100. For the industry Friday, again the same costings: one hundred and seventy-five for friends, two hundred for non, or a hundred for students. The gardener Saturday, they've uh, reduced the price a bit to make it more affordable for people: one hundred and twenty-five if you're a friends member, one fifty if you're not, and eighty dollars for students. Now um, that uh, that pricing includes lunch, morning, and afternoon tea. Um, there will be limited students' places available, so you do need to get in with that. Um, there's an uh, incredible array of um, guest speakers. Um, Professor Stephen Hopper, Angus Stewart, of course, um, people like uh, Jim Fogarty, uh, Loretta Childs, John Arnott, um, Roger Elliott, of course, and a whole lot of others that uh, are well-known in the industry. Uh, now, to book... Uh, you need to. You can phone uh, Chloe Foster. Uh, her number nine seven two five three five six nine. That's nine seven two five three five six nine. Or um, you can go to symposium at RBG Friends Cranbourne, all one word. dot org. dot au. That's symposium at RBG Friends Cranbourne. dot org. Dot .au to book for that one. 
And we have run out of time for yet another week. Stephen, you've got to be off and away. Uh, yes, I'll see everybody down at Garden World if they want to come and see me. You certainly will. We have to thank everyone, uh, the panel, and also a big thank you to Jan, who's been handling all the phones this morning. We'll, of course, be back uh, at this time next week at 7.30. Until then, bye for now.